Welcome to this month's episode of the Doctors for the Environment Australia podcast, a podcast where we discuss topical issues related to the environment and health. We would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land and pay our respect to Elders past, present and emerging. Our podcast is recorded all over Australia and so we take this opportunity to ask people to reflect on the country they live on and the special places they value. Now, this episode, Karen and myself have handed over the microphone to Dr. Bo Frigo, who has cameoed on the podcast a few times before. You might recognize his voice, uh, and he works quite hard behind the scenes to make this podcast a reality for all of us. Um, he is also an absolute superstar within Doctors for the Environment Australia, and he is currently living on the Gold Coast in Queensland and training in obstetrics and gynecology. This episode, he is interviewing Dr. Martin Rice, who is the acting CEO of the Climate Council, and they are going to be discussing sport and climate change. This feels super relevant to me right now, um, as I've been working in the emergency department lately and have seen quite a few fit young patients coming through recess with heat stroke following competing in some sporting competitions. Um, And I think as climate change progresses, the temperature gets hotter how we play sport in this country in a way that is enjoyable and safe for both athletes and spectators um, is going to be something that requires a bit more thought and ongoing discussion. So on that note, let's get into this month's episode. And as usual, you can find any supplemental links and more reading in the show notes. All right, perfect. So um, thanks very much for taking the time to have a chat with us on the podcast today. Um, I'm very fortunate to have a really great guest. Um, I've got Dr. Martin, Martin Rice, um, who's the acting CEO of the Climate Council, Australia's leading climate change communications organization, and the lead author of the Climate Council report, Game, Set, Match, Calling Time on Climate in Action, um, which is mostly what we're going to be talking about today. Um, and that's exactly how Martin and I met. So we um, met at the launch of the report a couple of weeks ago now um, on a particularly rainy day, as I remember, um, and also on the same day that they announced that potentially Southeast Queensland might be hosting an upcoming Olympic Games, which we'll, we'll probably speak a little bit about later on. Um, so thank you very much for spending time with us today, Dr. Rice. No problem, Bo. Thanks for having me. No worries. Um, all right. So I was really fascinated that the Climate Council decided they wanted to do a report about climate and sport. Where did the impetus for that come from and why did you guys decide that it was it was worth putting the energy and time into? So, I, I mean, the Climate Council's mandate is essentially to provide authoritative climate change information to the Australian public with the overall goal to actually push for stronger, faster climate action. Uh, here in Australia, sports an institution uh, it has huge cultural importance. Millions of Australians play or watch sport every weekend. So it's really a, a, an excellent platform to get awareness on climate change and the impacts on things that Australians love and therefore the need to act on climate change. Yeah, I mean, it's it, it really is a fascinating thing because I find that that's been similar with the sort of health angle as well, is that for those of us who are working in sort of the climate movement, um, we've almost had to get a bit creative about different ways to 
um, engage people in the conversation about it. And so you kind of have to meet the public where they're at and where their interests are at. Um, and that's been kind of the interesting thing about working with Doctors of the Environment and speaking more from a health angle is that people are intrinsically, you know, care about their own health. And so if you're speaking to them about how it impacts them, you know, specifically, whether it's about, you know, their capacity to play sport or their, you know, their ability to play sport safely, um, that all of a sudden they're paying attention in ways that they hadn't before. Um, and so I guess I was just kind of wondering, because I mean, as a Canadian, I, it's a bit foreign to me. What what do you think it is about sort of the Australian culture that sport plays such a, an integral role? Oh, look, I mean, you'll guess from my accent, I'm, I'm not from Australia originally, <laughs> uh, from Scotland. So I guess we're poles apart when it comes to sport. Australia is used to uh, being on the podium and going for gold, whereas Scotland, we can be pretty miserable at times, at the best of times, I should say. Mm. Um, but I think when you look at the, it was interesting when I, I was the lead author for this report and when I was doing the research and we always look at ways that we can help with the communication of the science and make it more interesting. So mm. I was looking, of course, at the, the global time series trend, which is essentially saying, global temperatures have increased by one degree over the past 100 odd years. So, well, that might not sound so exciting, but then I started mapping it out with when AFL was first played, when surfing was introduced in Australia, when Cathy Freeman won Olympic gold, uh, when the first Paralympian played for Australia in the, in the, I think it was the Rome Olympics, and then the Matildas doing uh, great things on the soccer field. And just really mapping out all these incredible Australian sporting achievements the past 100 years with how temperature is increasing because of the burning of coal, oil and gas and how that increase in temperature is actually really supercharging the climate and making extreme weather much worse. So in your intro, Bo, you, interestingly, you talked about a pretty uh, dreary, wet day in Brisbane it's interesting you say that because with every one degree rise, temperature rise, we have 7% more water vapour in the atmosphere. So that's essentially saying we're loading the dice towards much more intense rainfall and flooding. And we've actually seen that in Brisbane, for example, uh, 2011 floods. We saw the Suncorp Stadium, Lane Park, was submerged in 1.5 metres of water. And then we can talk, obviously there's health implications as well, which we can talk about. Can I, can I just say something on the health? And you talked about, obviously, doctors. And, and I think doctors, medical practitioners, doctors, nurses, uh, they have a huge role to play in, in talking about climate, the need for climate action. You're on the front line in many ways. And um, you have a trusted voice and that's what we look for in the climate council so we work with medical practitioners we work with firefighters we work with farmers so these are trusted voices to try and help convey the urgency of the climate crisis and yet the solutions so i just want to take the opportunity to thank the doctors and nurses and the health practitioners out there for keeping us safe in covid times 
Well, I mean, on behalf of, you know, everybody with DEA, I really appreciate that. I think, you know, it's why a lot of us have felt um, called to being involved in the organization is that it's, you know, it's given us a platform, you know, as you said, as a trusted voice in the community, both, you know, and on a national level, but even in our own communities that we live in, people look to us as sort of a sense of um, sort of security and knowledge and an and a unbiased voice about, you know, the science and you know, a lot of us are used to communicating the science to patients on a daily basis when we're talking about, you know, their general health conditions. So to be able to, you know, synthesize the science that, you know, the Climate Council puts together so beautifully um, for us, it really just allows, it's a good synergy because it provides us with the means to be able to sort of get the message out there in the ways that seem to resonate with people, I think, um, in a more effective way than probably it goes without that. Um, and it's probably something we need to be doing more of because I think if more people were to hear the health message um, and, you know, hear it through a lens of how they can really see it impact them. Because that's what I find is always fascinating about the whole climate change argument is that it's such a nebulous thing sometimes that people have a hard time grasping, okay, well, yeah, the climate is changing, but how is it actually impacting me? And it's not until you give them the examples of, you know, how their sport might be impacted or, you know, how heat illness affects them and all that kind of stuff. And then they start to see, oh, okay, maybe I actually do have an investment in this because it does impact myself, my children, my parents, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that was why it was fantastic to have you at the launch boards and the Doctors for the Environment Australia, because not only with me as the climate scientist and we had Craig Foster as the former socceroo, so the athlete, we had the trusted voices, you with the medical practitioner, the doctor talking about the health implications of climate change on athletes and how that affects and disrupts or the way of life that we love, essentially. Yeah. Well, and that's what I was going to ask you about, because I was looking through the report and there's a, you know, there's a few well-established and quite famous um, athletes that have kind of contributed their name and, and have written pieces to the report. Um, what's it been like kind of engaging in the sporting community in this document and, and what's their awareness seems to have been like with regards to sort of how climate change has impacted their individual games? So I think like um, many, let's say, cultural influencers, whether you're a, an actor or a singer or an artist or a, an athlete, um, many are, are greatly concerned by climate change, but they don't quite know how to talk about it. So one of the big things about this report is that it provides a foundational basis for athletes, elite athletes and community sport athletes to talk about climate change, how it's impacting them, how the, uh, sport can also be a powerful voice for change. As I said, you know, athletes are revered in Australia, clubs are revered, when we look at some of the best moments in Australian uh, life, culture, history, they always tend to look back towards sporting events. And as I said, you know, iconic moments like Kathy Freeman winning the gold. And we've got many outstanding Olympic athletes uh, here in Australia. Actually, we had uh, Bronte Campbell, who, of course, is a Queenslander, and she was involved in the report and talking about the need for climate action as well. So I think that athletes feel compelled. They have a deep concern for climate change. They just needed some information to arm them so that they can get out there and talk confidently and boldly about climate change. So, and I guess it's the same for doctors for the environment. And you've got many 
fantastic doctors and nurses that are concerned, but they need the information about climate change to try and help them talk about the challenge and also the solution. Yeah. Well, and the, and the fact of the matter is, is there's so many you know, more recent examples, at least, that are affecting athletes across all genres of sport. And that became quite clear reading through the report that, you know, almost every sport is affected to some degree um, because of the elements of climate change, whether it's, you know, the the playability of fields because of drought or because of heavy rains to, you know, the capacity to play high-level sport because of extreme heat, you know, using the Australian uh, Open as an example. You know, I remember I wrote an op-ed about that a couple of years ago, talking about sort of the extreme court temperatures that they were having to deal with, um, you know, with court temperatures in the 60 degrees Celsius. That that feels and sounds inhumane and that we're expecting athletes to play at, you know, peak performance in those types of conditions is just setting themselves up to become unwell and needing, you know, medical treatment. And then plus hearing the side part about, um, <clears throat> you know, over a thousand spectators needing to be treated for heat exhaustion just to watch the sport they love. Like it, it's becoming more and more prevalent with each passing year that, you know, the dynamics around being able to play and watch sport is going to be changing. Yeah, that's right. So Gail Monfield, the, um, the French tennis player who during the Australian Open, and, you know, he's, he's one of the most classy, best uh, players in the planet and obviously elite uh, athlete, top of his fitness, and he, as you said, he described the conditions with the extreme heat in Melbourne as actually inhumane to play. Mm-hmm. Um, in our report, we feature Amy Steele, who again, elite athlete. She was an Australian professional netballer, uh, represented her country. Um, she actually had to quit her career after suffering from extreme heat exposure while playing in uh, an exhibition match in Victoria. Um, so these are elite athletes we're talking about and the health implications. Yeah. So just, you know, imagine what it's like for the community athletes as well that don't have the the training and the background and everything to help them cope with these conditions. Mm. Well, I, yeah, especially, I mean, we're, and we're talking about elite athletes who, you know, have, you know, quite, you know, peak physiology and the ability to maintain, you know, an equilibrium from dealing with all kinds of stressful situations. Um, but when we're talking about, you know, our, you know, people in the community, people playing local level sport in their local clubs, um, what do you think, what are the key messages that we're trying to get across to, to people in those scenarios? So I guess that ultimately no athlete, whether you're an elite professional or a community player, is immune to our increasingly changing climate and more disruption of sport because of worsening extreme weather events. So when we look at, I think Victoria is a, a good example um, with the millennium drought. We will see more intense and severe droughts um, because of climate change. Uh, what we're seeing in southern Australia um, is that we're, we get cool season rainfall traditionally, but because of climate change, we're, we're seeing a shift in ocean currents and weather systems that provide that rainfall are being pushed further south. So that really helped intensify the millennium drought and obviously extreme temperatures uh, because of the burning of coal, oil and gas. So in Victoria, community sport was greatly disrupted. So there was one study by I think the leading health in, uh, insurers uh, for community sports saying there'd been actually a, a spike in injuries 
during drought conditions, playing on hard surfaces. So you could imagine the footballers, the rugby players, the cricket players, there was actually a, a 23% spike in shoulder injuries. Um, so that's one aspect. Community sport was also badly affected because it costs huge amounts of money, in some cases like half a million, to truck in water to support community clubs in these areas. That's not sustainable. Some clubs obviously can't afford that, and it's only going to get worse with climate change. And then you've got the other end of the spectrum here in Queensland, where, of course, we saw the devastating floods in Townsville in 2019. So three community clubs, they had bills to recover from the damage of roughly a quarter of a million dollars each. That's huge. I mean, that's not sustainable. And talking of sustainability, when we look at climate projections, we could see Melbourne and Sydney having 50 degree uh, summer days. You can't play sport in that. It's game over. So that's why we're calling time on climate inaction. Yeah. And, and you know, we, we keep mentioning heat, which, which, you know, is one of the many different ways in which, you know, there can be health implications for people who are wanting to be active and play sport. I mean, we, we can talk probably ages about the bushfires that happened last year and the change in air quality and, you know, reflecting on the Australian Open again, how they had to, you know, reduce play because the air quality level was the worst in the world at some points during those bushfires. And so to expect spectators and athletes to be breathing in particulate matter like that um, is incredibly discerning to uh, to me um, and to many, I think, that had to, to, had to experience that. Um, but from a heat perspective, um, what is it that we want people to be cautious about? Because some, I think the average person probably doesn't fully understand how much heat can really uh, be a detriment to them. Yeah, so I think the main point is it doesn't matter how young or fit you are, we are extremely vulnerable to heat. And uh, once you start uh, playing active sport in temperature, so for example, we, we uh, there's been record hot days, or I should say hot days have doubled the past um, 30 or odd, so years uh, because of climate change. When you play in these conditions, it's really, it's loading the dice towards heat illness, uh, heat stroke, and so nausea, vomiting, um, and there's a multitude of other health effects because of your, your exposure for that. So I think the message there is that you really do need to take care. And we quite often see, I'm always amazed actually when as a Scot especially, I'm, I'm quite dumbfounded when I see people jogging in 30, 35 degree heat here in Australia. And I'm just like, you're just exposing yourself to unnecessary risk. But when we look at the big picture, so if we don't tackle climate change, then extreme heat will essentially make summer sport that we love unplayable. And it's not just heat, we'll see more uh, severe and devastating bushfires and Bo you talked about the the air quality index which was off the charts the worst in the world and um, for places like Canberra and Melbourne and Sydney and that did greatly affect professional sport whether it's the Aussie Open or the Big Bash cricket but also um, 
it limits opportunities for for um, people to enjoy the many benefits of active sport and active life. So you can't go out running, you can't swim in these uh, bushfire toxic air quality uh, loaded situations. So so we really need to tackle climate change. But this is what's exciting, and this is why we involved athletes as well because the solutions are there, um, and it's really just time to get on with the job. Mm. Well, I mean, and you've, you've led into it quite well, but um, I guess before we get into the solutions, how, how much is, you know, the sporting organization, sporting world contributing to our climate emissions? Look, every, every uh, walk of life, every sector contributes to, um, to climate change. So fossil fuels are enemy number one. I mean, that's three quarters of our emissions that are driving up temperatures and supercharging the climate and unleashing these devastating extreme weather events that not only affect um, athletes and people playing sports, but our economy, the natural environment and so forth. Yes, sport does contribute. I think it's 8% of global emissions or roughly the equivalent of um, Spain's national emissions each year. Mm. Well, no, and it's an important point that you make because it's really only by addressing all the elements of our, you know, societal existence that's going to really make the difference. I mean, we the podcast that we recorded just before this one was talking about how the health sector contributes. And, you know, the health sector globally is a pretty similar percentage, you know, around 7-8%. Um, and, you know, if, if we were to tackle that and tackle sport and tackle, you know what I mean, each one of those things does their own small part. Um, and what I think is really beautiful about um, the report that you guys have done is that it really highlights some interesting and sort of practical solutions that the sporting world um, has at their disposal to make a difference in this realm. Um, do you want to highlight some of the ones that you think are particularly interesting? Yeah. So, well, I guess I could do a bit of a bridge between your last podcast because you no doubt talked about the UK and how they're decarbonizing the health sector there and NHS, NHS England is doing fantastic things. So mm-hmm. uh, the amount of lives that they're saving because of their tackling climate change and the huge savings um, is phenomenal. And I think uh, Australia, I know that there are medical practitioners here. We've got our counsellor, for example, Kate, Dr. Kate Charlesworth. And I think she's with Doctors for the Environment as well. So she worked on a sustainability team in the UK on the decarbonizing and she's looking at ways we can do that here in Australia. So there's many opportunities, not just for health, but also for sport. So we've we've actually developed a, a climate action toolkit for sports. So as I said, athletes are revered, so use their powerful voice of athletes and sporting clubs to really generate momentum, awareness and then action on climate change. Also think about how uh, sport is powered. So look at the venues, uh, switch to renewables, power the venues. So I think, Bo, you're on the Gold Coast and the Metricon Stadium, I think, gets a considerable amount of its energy from solar power. Um, So I think it's really looking at how venues are powered. Also thinking about how spectators and participants get to and from events but using public transport electric vehicles and so forth reducing waste is a big one as well of course 
sport has big sponsorship at the elite level. And I think there's a huge responsibility by major sporting organizations to basically ditch fossil fuel sponsorship and transition to much more climate friendly, climate solution oriented sponsorship. There's many, many ways. Um, so I'd encourage the listeners to have a look at our report and also the, the Sports Climate Action Toolkit. And um, I think that many of your listeners will obviously come from different local councils and the Climate Council's actually got Australia's largest local council climate action network called Cities Power Partnership. So that's also part of the solution toolkit that the listeners can have a look at and see if their mem- their council is a member, and if not, then encourage them to join. I mean, I mean, they're all wonderful suggestions because I think you're absolutely right. With any with any of these issues, you need to kind of tackle it from a multi pronged approach, and so it is, you know, about the way that the sport itself is conducted, but absolutely the venues that we host them in, and um, and the money that's uh, utilized to. Um, you know, keep them going or finance them where that's coming from, because it's uh, all of those elements are going to make a difference. I find it such an interesting thing because we're, as we've mentioned, the changing climate is going to change our capacity to be involved in sort of a healthy, active lifestyle. Um, And it's only until we sort of start to take that more seriously, does our ability to maintain healthy, active lifestyles going to change. And so kind of a bit of a divergence from that, as we mentioned at the beginning, when we were um, releasing the launch of the report, they made that announcement about potentially Southeast Queensland hosting the next Olympic Games. And coinciding with that, that the International Olympic Committee was going to require host nations to run climate positive Olympic Games from 2030. So in essence, if, if Southeast Queensland were to host it, they'd be the first um, games that would be expected to live up to that. Um, I'm just curious, and I'm wondering if you know more about this. What exactly does that look like? What makes the games climate positive? Yeah, so look, I mean, as a sports fan, it's very exciting. If uh, mm. if Queensland gets this opportunity, I mean, they've proven since the Commonwealth Games to be able to, to host these events. Um, and it's a great opportunity to show that Australia can actually do a clean and green Olympic Games. Um, but they really need to step up and rise to the challenge and also get our own house in order and rapidly reduce their emissions. So to the question, what does climate positive actually mean? Well, this is all about uh, uh, the games actually being able to absorb or remove more emissions than they produce. So there's ways that they can do that. So, for example, infrastructure is obviously a major uh aspect of the Olympic Games. One way to reduce or actually not have any emissions is to use existing infrastructure. And I mentioned the Gold Coast Games and there's many other events, uh, the Commonwealth Games, as I said. That, that So we do have the facilities here in Queensland, so use them. Don't build new ones. We don't need them. Um, it's an, also an, an opportunity to actually expand and improve on our public transport. Uh, so that I think we've seen elements of that. So, for example, in Brisbane, the GABA, and I think Lane Park, Suncorp Stadium, before the footy games or the cricket games, then it's free transport, public transport, to get to these sporting events. So these are some good examples of how you can actually absorb your emissions and become a, a carbon positive. 
so the the IOC, the International Organizing Committee for the Olympics, have made this commitment, and it's actually an obligation of any future host uh, beyond, I think, 2020 to have um, carbon positive games. So we welcome that. But of course, the proof is in the pudding and uh, oh. they actually have to rise to that challenge. But I, I have no doubt that Queensland can rise to that challenge and Queenslanders love a good challenge and they love a good sport and event as well. Yeah, well, I mean, it's it's exactly what you said. I mean, because we've hosted, you know, a, a, a fairly international games very recently, the expectation would be that a lot of the facilities are already available to some capacity. Um, and it, as we all know, is that because Queensland is um, quite a sunny state um, with a lot of access to um, solar energy, if it wanted to, um, that um, there certainly is the capacity for it to run itself in a very sustainable way. Um, and it's kind of what we've been talking about before, how the sporting world can be an asset to sort of the climate movement as opposed to a detriment. And if they choose to run their events, their leagues, their major sporting events in this way, then they become, you know, real leaders in the area, whereas, you know, a lot of other industries are kind of lagging behind in that regard. So I think it's, I agree with you. I think it's a wonderful um, step. Um, but as with all of these things, it comes down to how it gets enforced and who and who follows through on those types of things. So I guess it's kind of a watch this space and and see if, you know, if Queensland does get it, how we rise to the occasion. Yeah, absolutely. No, I have no doubt Queensland can and will rise to the occasion. They will certainly have an opportunity to go for gold, that's for sure, when it comes to tackling climate change. Wonderful. Um, I guess we'll try to end with one more practical thing. I mean, there's a lot of, um, you know, local doctors who are... Um, who have a wide variety of patients from, you know, the elderly to um, children, pregnant women, et cetera, all of whom are trying to maintain some sort of an active lifestyle. Um, if you had one sort of message for them about how they can speak about all of this to their patients, um, what would you say? Well, I think that um, sport obviously has huge, well, many co-benefits cool and health is probably one of the biggest ones. And, and not just from a physical perspective. I mean, of course, exercising is, is good for heart, lung capacity, everything else that comes with it. But there's this huge mental well-being aspects um, from a human health perspective. So we have seen, for example, when, you know, there are mental health impacts um, when you can't play sport. We've seen that in the drought conditions. So rural and regional communities are really sport is the social fabric so we need to protect so everyone has a responsibility to tackle climate change and by tackling climate change it means that we have opportunities to improve our health and well-being by playing sport and having an active life and we also get to protect the enjoyment of summer sport and winter sport for that matter uh, for future generations Wonderful. Um, it's been wonderful to talk to you again. Thanks for um, agreeing to be a part of this episode of the podcast. I think um, it's it's a really, I think, engaging topic. I think it's a pretty universal topic. As you mentioned, pretty much everybody participates in sport to some capacity or is a fan of sport. 
Um, and so I think, you know, utilizing this kind of um, avenue to get engagement from people is a great start. Um, and uh, having read the report, it really is quite thorough. It includes all kinds of really interesting information and perspectives that I, I thought was, was really good. Um, and so are people able to access that through the Climate Council website? Yeah, that's right. So it's climatecouncil.org.au and uh, you'll see in the report toolbar. There we are, mm. game set and match, calling time on climate inaction. All right. Well, we will conclude ourselves there. Thank you very much for your time, Dr. Rice. Um, and I'm sure our paths will cross again soon. Thanks a lot, Bo. And thanks, listeners, for your time too. And good luck with all the important work you do as well. Mm-hmm.